Hello, folks. Welcome to the December 2022 edition of First Thursday, the monthly podcast from the Labor Relations Information System. My name is Will Aitchison. I'll be your host for the next 45 minutes or so as we go over recent developments in the public safety, labor relations, and employment world. Sometimes in these podcasts, there's like one overarching significant uh case or some other development that I want to talk about. Uh, That's not the case this month. Uh, This month, I have a fair number, about six, uh, smaller cases that each stand for some pretty important principles that have been released in the usual end-of-the-year court rush, where courts try to get as many opinions out before the end of the year uh, and the vacations. So uh, let's start in Cincinnati, Ohio, with a question. This one I actually have never seen litigated, much less to the Federal Court of Appeals level. Uh, And this is the question as to whether or not there is a constitutional right to record internal affairs interviews, in this case, for a union to record internal affairs interviews. So how does this case come up? Uh, Cincinnati residents can lodge police misconduct complaints with a civilian review board. It's essentially called the city's citizen complaint authority. The authority has a team of investigators, an executive director who's appointed by the city manager, and then a seven-person board that oversees everything appointed by the mayor. If a complaint comes in, the authority conducts an investigation. That investigation includes interviews of officers, complainants, any other witnesses, and officers are required as a condition of employment to participate in those interviews. Uh, as you might expect, because these are interviews that could result in discipline, officers have the right to representation by their labor organization. And the labor organization here is the Fraternal Order of Police, Lodge 69. Officers have the right to representation by Lodge 69 uh, in the uh, interviews being conducted by the authority. Once the authority finishes an investigation, it prepares findings and recommendations to the board. Board holds a hearing, approves or rejects the findings and recommendations, and everything goes down the appeals route. So that's the background. Uh, How does this all come up? In the summer of 2021, the president of Lodge 69, Sergeant Daniel Hills, uh, reported troubling behavior with respect to uh, some of the authorities' investigations, in particular uh, investigations conducted by uh, a gentleman by the name of Ichuku Ekeke. I know I have just mispronounced his name, uh, and I apologize to Mr. Akeke. When you go through life with a name like Aitchison, uh, you're very, very tolerant of people pronouncing your names any which way they possibly can. So Hills alleges that Akeke, in recording an officer's interview during an investigation, would selectively turn off the recording when the officer made exculpatory statements, statements that cleared the officer. And of course, that troubles Hills. 
on another occasion, Hills uh, reported that he saw a KK threatening an officer before an interview. So Hills decides, I'm going to make my own recordings of these interviews, and I'm going to keep them, and if appropriate, I'll share them with others, and undefined others. In July of 2021, uh, he tried to record an interview of an officer by the name of Charles Knapp, who he represented. Uh, the authority investigator asked Hills to stop, um, and uh, Hills refuses to stop, or rather Knapp refuses to answer any questions, and the investigator ended the interview. Uh, it took all of a day for a KK and the director of the authority, a fellow by the name of Gabriel Davis, to formally put in place a policy that prohibited officers from recording interviews. Uh, and under the policy, if an officer refused to stop recording, the authority reserved the right to end the interview and finish its investigation without hearing the officer's side of the story. So when this policy goes into place, Hills and three affected officers, by now we're up to three different interviews where this sort of thing has happened, uh, they sue. They sue the city, they sue a KK, they sue uh, uh, the director, Davis, for violating their free speech rights under the First Amendment to the Constitution. They sue in federal court. In the meantime, Lodge 69 files an unfair labor practice charge against the city arising from the same set of affairs that I have just described. The charge leads to a partial settlement in which the city agrees to record all interviews all of the time going forward. No more turning off uh, the recording device, whatever it might be. But the federal court lawsuit is still out there. So let me go off on a sideline right now. What's going on with this charge uh, as opposed to the federal court lawsuit? Well, uh, when the, the authority promulgated this new rule that you could not record any interviews conducted by the authority. If you think about it, that's a change in disciplinary procedures, right? Uh, and disciplinary procedures are mandatory for bargaining. They're mandatory for negotiations in Ohio and pretty much anywhere you've got collective bargaining, which means the employer can't unilaterally adopt that change without first negotiating with the union. Uh, and in Ohio, the process of negotiations ends with binding arbitration. Now, there's no description in the court's opinion of what the unfair labor practice charge was. This is all guessing on my part, but I'm, uh, I'd be willing to bet a lot of money that what the a uh, ULP charge was here was, hey, you should have bargained with us before you implemented this change in the policy. And the city, since it pretty quickly agrees to settle and record all interviews all of the time going forward, which is kind of a practical solution to this whole problem, I, I'm guessing the city saw the errors of its ways. Now, you may ask, the authority isn't in the chain of command of the Cincinnati Police Department, why would the authority have the obligation to bargain over a rule change? And the answer is uh, the employer for labor relations purposes is not 
the Cincinnati Police Department. It's not uh, the authority. The employer is the city of Cincinnati. And the police department and the authority are simply subdivisions of the city. It is the city that owes the bargaining obligation to Lodge 69. And therefore, if any entity in the city, it could be whoever runs health insurance in the, in the city, or maybe it's the, the health office or whatever it might be, if any department in the city makes a change that impacts the negotiable working conditions of members of the police department or the fire department, there's an obligation to negotiate, even though that entity may not be in the chain of command. All right. Back to uh, the free speech lawsuit where Hills and company are saying a ban on our ability to record these investigatory interviews violates the First Amendment. What happens to that? Well, it goes to uh, a federal court of appeals and the court of appeals in pretty short order rejects the claim. Um, why? Uh, what's the, the basis for the court's ruling? Well, the court says a whole bunch of things. This is a case that's loaded with dicta. Dicta is the phrase courts use to describe parts of their opinions that aren't necessary to reach the result that they reach, but that they just simply want to write anyway. Uh, and there's a lot of that dicta in this case. But the heart of what the court says is this, quote, Start with the text of the First Amendment. The relevant language guaranteeing freedom of speech does not by itself cover this conduct, tape recording or recording. Back to the court. A prohibition on recording speech is not a prohibition on speaking. The union representative Hills indeed freely spoke about the city's recording policy and made some headway changing it. In other words, through the settlement of the ULP. Uh, and the court ends up saying, this is just simply not a First Amendment issue uh, because there's no prohibition of speech here. There's no right to record, constitutional right to record an investigatory interview of this sort. Uh, and the court ends up with uh, some words that are directed, I think, directly at uh, Lodge 69. And here's what the court says, quote, one risk of permitting the release of, say, a videotaped interview in the midst of an investigation ought to resonate with the claimants. The claimants here are Hills, the officers, and the FOP. It's the risk that only part of the interview will be shared with the media or that the media will use only part of the video during the nightly news. If it is unfair to an officer charged with misconduct to turn a recording on and off during an interview of him, it is equally unfair to the integrity of the investigation and the objective of public confidence in it to share bits and pieces of the investigation with the public before the full investigation ends. And the court ends up saying, look, the authority has a legitimate interest in maintaining the way this information is disseminated, in conducting interviews in a fair way, and in ensuring that interviews aren't selectively broadcast. 
And this rule, this rule barring recording by either the officer or by the representative is rationally related to that interest. So, end result, no constitutional right to tape record an investigatory interview. Now, let me ask a slightly different question now. Uh, Remember, Hills is in there in the interview with the authority acting in his capacity as a union representative. In other words, this is what I've referred to in prior podcasts as the the Weingarten rule in action. Uh, He's there as the representative of the union when a member is facing an interview about which discipline could potentially result. Does Weingarten, the right to representation under a labor statute, include the right to record an investigatory interview? And uh, labor boards are split on this issue. The National Labor Relations Board, once upon a time, it's an old case, has said no. There is no right to conduct a recording. Uh, state labor boards have split on the issue. I would say the majority would say there is no Weingarten right to tape record, even though I've never done a hand count of the number of states. But some have. Uh, there's even a New York case saying that a union has the right to video record an interview. Uh, that New York case arose in the context of a fitness for duty evaluation uh, conducted of a police officer. So what, if you're wondering whether or not, absent any rules on the issue, whether or not a union rep can come into an internal affairs interview and plunk down a recording device, turn it on and say, now we start, the answer unfortunately is one It depends upon what state you're in. So anybody hearing this who has that issue one way or the other, check with your local attorneys. Next up, we've got a free speech case involving a firefighter in Georgia. Don't see too many free speech cases involving firefighters. Those things usually get to be, tend to be worked out in the firehouse. But uh, I can tell you the number of these cases is increasing and also that firefighters don't seem to be having any more luck convincing federal courts to side with them in free speech issues than law enforcement officers have. And the reason comes right back down to a rule you've heard me talk about several times, the rule that the Supreme Court announced in Garcetti versus Sabalos about 12 years ago or so. And this is the rule that if a public employee engages in speech that arises out of the course of the job, the speech is not protected by the First Amendment, period. End of issue. Doesn't matter what the speech is about. Doesn't matter if it's about a matter of public importance. Doesn't matter if it's whistleblowing speech. If it arises out of the job, there is no constitutional protection under the First Amendment for the speech. And that is a lesson learned by Scott Millspaw, who uh, was what's called a Firefighter three for Cobb County, Georgia. Uh, Millspaw is kind of an administrative firefighter. He assists with the scheduling of staff for a particular battalion. It's known as Battalion 4. 
Uh, he routinely discusses staffing with his battalion chief as part of his job duties. He's responsible uh, to some extent for coordinating uh, absences from duty and figuring out how many people need to be called in, uh, that sort of stuff. And he's part of a chain of command that ends with the fire chief on the issue of staffing. So on the morning of May 2nd, 2019, Millspa leaves a voicemail with an assistant for a county commissioner. This is county commissioner, uh, I think it's a her, her name is Kelly Gambro. Now, this is not Millspa's chain of command, right? This is an elected public official, uh, which kind of suggests, when we start off this case, kind of suggests that this is speech that is not related to the job, because it's outside of the chain of command, and it's not part of his job duties to report to a county commissioner. So what does uh, what does this voicemail say? Uh, and it's very very short; it's two sentences long. "Quote: I was wanting to know if you guys knew why there were five fire trucks not operational today in District One. Thank you very much." Uh, District 1 is kind of a political subdivision in uh, Cobb County. So Millspa is clearly uh, going outside of the chain of command here uh, in an effort to bring political pressure on the department to have adequate staffing on duty at any one time. Well, uh, the commissioner's office doesn't actually call Millspa back uh, and, in fact, what it does is report it to the department, and the department eventually demotes Millspa from Firefighter 3 to Firefighter 2 in Cobb County. That means a 10% reduction in Millspa's pay. They also change his performance evaluation from exceeds expectations to meets expectations because of the voicemail, and that means that there will be a negative effect on his pay raise for the following year. So Millspa takes a deep breath and sues. He brings a lawsuit in federal court, and he alleges that uh, his voicemail was speech protected by the First Amendment and was clearly the motivating basis for uh, the county's decision to demote him and give him the reduced performance evaluation. Uh, that case goes to the Federal 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. Now, let me pause for a moment. Uh, we have 12 federal courts of appeals in the country. I think I have that count right. Uh, the first, no, excuse me, 13. The first 11 of them are geographically divided around the country. The First Circuit Court of Appeals, the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. This one is the Eleventh Circuit Court of Appeals. When you're thinking the Eleventh Circuit, think the far southeast corner of this country. So uh, Georgia, the case we're talking about here, Florida, uh, those are the types of states that are in the Eleventh Circuit. Now, these courts, these different geographic uh, circuit courts of appeals, these courts have different political makeups depending upon which president is appointing vacancies in these circuit courts. Uh, and we, as we have so, so clearly seen over the last 20 years or so, the political party of the president 
has a huge influence on the way that these federal courts resolve employment cases. Uh, I, I can tell you this from having read many, many of these cases, that there are some circuits where it, it, the, if you see a constitutional case go before the Court of Appeals, you know the employee's got a pretty good chance of winning that case. And there are some other circuits where uh, you know the employee has virtually no chance of winning a case. The 11th Circuit is in the second category. I actually can't remember the last time I saw the 11th Circuit decide a case in favor of an employee uh, in a public safety labor relations setting. I'm sure they exist. I'm sure I may have overlooked them. But I'll tell you, when I saw this case was going to the 11th Circuit, I knew right away how it was going to come out. And that's because the vast majority of 11th Circuit judges have been appointed by either uh, President Trump or President Bush. And that's just the way the politics works on these things. And sure enough, uh, Mel Spa loses. Well, why does he lose? What does the court say? Well, the court says, look, uh, the first question we've got to address in all these cases is, under Garcetti, is the employee uh, speaking, in this case, leaving the voicemail, that's the speech, is the employee speaking as an employee or speaking as a citizen? And the court ends up saying, clearly, he's speaking as an employee and therefore, there is no constitutional protection. Even though his speech is about a matter of public concern, the court says staffing and the availability of fire suppression services, those are important safety issues for the community. But even though the speech is about a matter of public concern, because the speech arose out of Millpaw's duties, it's not constitutionally protected. So why does the court say that if the voicemail is not left with the fire chief or anybody in Millspa's chain of command, but instead an elected public official? Here's what the court says. Quote, it is undisputed that ensuring adequate staffing within Millspa's battalion was squarely within his job responsibilities and that he often had conversations with supervisors about finding adequate staff to keep their vehicles in operations. His voicemail sought to advance his professional responsibilities of securing more staff to operate fire trucks. His attempt to draw a distinction between his day-to-day -day responsibility in assigning staff and his voicemail is unpersuasive given the content of the voicemail itself. Uh, and the court focuses on the fact that the voicemail focused on staffing shortages on a particular day rather than broader public safety concerns or other policy issues. And so the court says, in the end, this speech arose out of his job. It's unprotected. Demotion and reduced performance evaluation upheld. Now let's go to California in a case involving California's public safety officer's Bill of Rights. 
the Bill of Rights in California, which is statutory, both for, they're, they're separate ones for police and firefighters. The Bill of Rights has a one-year statute of limitations. Uh, and the way that that works is that an investigation into potential misconduct has to be completed within one year of the discovery of the conduct. And uh, this case, which arises out of Riverside County, uh, California, this case involves the level of employer knowledge that is necessary to trigger the start of that one-year statute of limitations. So what's this case all about? It's about a captain by the name of Andrew Schaus. Uh, and in May of 2016, uh, a, a chief, uh, his name is Ray Wood, learned of a rumor about an intimate relationship involving Schaus and a deputy by the name of Karen Bouchard. The rumors indicated that Burchard was saving photos or text messages on her cell phone, and so Wood gets worried that there might be legal action against the department or that she would start doing things that uh, would undermine Schaus's authority as a captain, creating conflicts of interest. So Wood uh, meets Schaus for lunch and asks him, have you ever had a sexual relationship with uh, Burchard? And Schaus says, yes. Uh, but uh, that was in the past, and we are not now engaged in a relationship. Shao says, I was involved with Bouchard from 2010 to 2015, and yes, she was under my chain of command. So shortly afterwards, after this meeting, before Wood does anything about any of this, I refer to him as a chief. He's a, a, a chief deputy. Sorry about that. Uh, Chief Deputy Wood learns of an alleged relationship between uh, Schaus and somebody else, another deputy. This is Roxanne Salas. Uh, and so Wood arranges to meet with Salas, who says, yep, uh, I had an intimate relationship with Schaus. And at this point, uh, the department does start a formal investigation and ends up concluding that Schaus had engaged in improper sexual relationships with Bouchard, 2010 to 2015, Salas, 2015, an office assistant, 2014, and improper sexting relationships with two community service officers, 2013 through 2016. And he did not report any of those relationships to the department. Uh, the department ends up firing Schaus, goes to a hearing, the hearing officer upholds his termination, and the case makes its way to the California Court of Appeals. And Schaus's argument is, you didn't complete this investigation within one year. Why? Because uh, Chief Deputy Wood should have known of the improper conduct long before May 2016, uh, because he'd heard rumors about Schaus's relationship with female deputies before that time. So Schaus is saying, look, you should have commenced this investigation uh, when you heard the rumors. And the court isn't buying it. Uh, the court says, yeah, what was the right person to have initiated an investigation uh, but at the time that Wood heard the rumors of 
sexual relationships between Shaus and others, it could not be determined that those relationships were in violation of department policies. Why? And quoting from the court, sexual relationships with female deputies were not, per se, improper. As both Chief Wood and Under Sheriff Cleary each testified, the issue of Shaus having sexual relationships wasn't the issue. It was Shaus's failure to report the relationships to the department and Shaus's conduct of having sex with female deputies while on duty that was improper. Now, Shaus says, look, it wasn't just Wood. There were at least half a dozen supervisors and senior officers who knew of these allegations against me, and all of them could have started a complaint inquiry. Uh, and the court says, yeah, you know, that's true. The record does show there were rumors of all of these intimate relationships and Shouse drinking to effect, uh, but Shouse failed to identify uh, anybody who knew that those relationships were improper. Uh, and the court ends with, uh, I think, some language that is directed not merely at Shouse, even though that's the way the court writes it, but is directed at police unions in general. Uh, this is kind of the same thing that we saw the Court of Appeals do in that Cincinnati case. So this is the court kind of chastising somebody. And the California Court of Appeals says, quote, we are certain Shouse does not wish to promote a policy of launching into the intimate relationships of public safety officers on the basis of mere rumors. Instead, an investigation into conduct that can have a devastating impact on the career of a public safety officer should only be initiated when the officer authorized to initiate an investigation knows or has reason to know that the conduct involves actionable misconduct. An officer authorized to initiate an investigation should not be required to do so on the basis of unsubstantiated rumors. Think about that for a moment. Think about the public policy behind that for just a moment. Uh, wouldn't the public want a law enforcement agency, or because there's a Bill of Rights for Firefighters in California, a fire protection agency, wouldn't the public want an investigation to be started if there were rumors of rules violations, substantial rules violations. Uh, now, maybe the investigation might not be a formal internal affairs investigation. Maybe it would be just as simple as sitting down with the people involved saying, hey, did this happen? And if it did happen, then you launch a formal investigation. The court seems to be suggesting that the public doesn't want that, and that public policy should be that we're not going to construe the Bill of Rights, uh, the one-year statute of limitations, as requiring an investigation to start. I could see how the court could go either way on that issue. This case isn't quite as clear-cut as the court makes it seem. But nonetheless, uh, you know, we now have a court of appeals in California uh, ruling that unsubstantiated rumors do not trigger the start 
of the statute of limitations in a Bill of Rights. Okay, we're going to head back to the southeast now, talk about a Louisiana case and the Americans with Disabilities Act. Uh, We've all heard that the ADA requires an employer to reasonably accommodate an individual's disability. The ADA lists a series of different things that could be reasonable accommodation, assignment to a vacant position, job restructuring, things like that. Uh, We all know that this obligation to reasonably accommodate exists. The question is, how far does it go? Can an employee insist that an employer reasonably accommodate a disability by actually making a change in essential job functions. So uh, here's here's what this case is all about. It comes out of St. James Parish in Louisiana. Uh, it's there's they don't call it a cor- correctional facility there. They call it the parish jail, and this involves a sergeant by the name of Cardell Bright. Uh, When Bright was hired in 2015, he had a medical problem with his bowels. He'd recently recovering from a rectal surgery, and he was uh, diabetic. Uh, Bright's uh, diabetes was sensitive to stress, and the result was when high stress times, he'd have low blood sugar and ultimately diarrhea. And when he gets diarrhea, Uh, His rectum becomes extremely sore and relief can only be obtained by sitting in a tub of cold water. And yes, this is what happens when you file a case in federal court. All of this stuff gets shouted to the world, or state court, gets shouted to the world for anybody to read in a court opinion. So uh, what happens uh, to bring this case to light? Well, Bright uh, is alleging that he endured quite a lot of stress in the jail because of his uh, romantic relationship with Raquel Banks, who was employed at the jail as a corrections officer. Banks and Bright later became engaged. And Bright says the stress comes from the fact that the warden also is interested in Banks. And once Banks and Bright started getting intimate, Uh, the warden began to harass Bright in numerous ways that escalated his stress. Uh, And by April 14th of 2020, because of the warden's harassment, uh, Bright says, Bright's diabetes was out of control. Uh, Two days later, Bright's the only supervisory uh, officer on duty. The sheriff's written policy is that no deputy has the right to... uh, walk away from work without being properly relieved. Bright left early that day. He had permission to leave early, but he departed before his replacement arrived. He left early because of all of these physical conditions were such that uh, he was going to need to take that cold bath that relieved his symptoms. Uh, So he, he just simply left before his relief arrived. The parish terminated him, and Bright sued, alleging that the department failed to reasonably accommodate his disability. Uh, And the court, and this is a a federal trial court in Louisiana, the the court says, 
We're not contesting the fact that Bright has a disability here. He's got diabetes that is very clearly a disability. These bowel problems are. We're not contesting that. The question is, how far does the obligation to reasonably accommodate that disability go? And the court says, and I'm quoting, the ADA does not require an employer to relieve an employee of any essential functions of the job, modify those duties, reassign existing employees to perform those jobs, or hire new employees to do so. The court is not certain. Courts love to talk about themselves that way. Instead of saying, we are not certain, they say, the court is not certain. What the specific limitations pertaining to the bowel ailment were, except that Bright had to use the bathroom frequently and his rectum would become inflamed, causing much discomfort he could only soothe in a tub of cold water. The court questions whether the need to use the bathroom frequently and to soothe the sore anus constitute limitations that the sheriff would have been required to accommodate under the ADA. But that's not even the issue here, says the court. Bright walked away from work. It is essential, it is an essential function of the job for a supervisor in the jail to be physically present at the jail where inmates are housed. Quote, Bright's job was not one that could be done remotely. So the accommodation that Bright seeks which is to be relieved of an essential function of his job, being physically present, that someone else be, would then be asked to perform, is not an accommodation that the ADA would require the sheriff to provide. Uh, nothing new about uh, that principle, that there's no obligation to reasonably accommodate essential functions of the job. Uh, and in fact, it's that principle that has really been the heart of the reason that it is so, so difficult for public safety employees to contend that the ADA requires assignment to light-duty jobs. The last case I want to talk about today is a PTSD case that uh, comes out of the Nevada Court of Appeals. Uh, and I want to use this as an illustration to talk about the different way these PTSD cases are judged for workers' compensation or pension purposes. Uh, but first, well, let me give you the background on this case. It involves uh, a fellow by the name of William Marks, who's employed by the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. Uh, Las Vegas and Clark County, Nevada, have a combined agency that is known as Metro. Uh, Marks has worked for Metro for 21 years. He's a member of the SWAT team during the last 10 years of his employment. And in August 2018, he was involved in a shooting with an armed suspect who was barricaded inside the bathroom of an apartment unit for about 14 hours. Officers and negotiators repeatedly contacted the suspect by telephone, attempting to get him to surrender, but the suspect continually refused, hung up the phone, and as the day went on, the suspect uh, started firing shots towards the responding officers. Uh, once officers were able to clear everybody out of the other units in the apartment complex, 
Now, with shots firing, of course, you got to get, there were about 20 people in this apartment. You got to get those people out. Marks and another SWAT officer breached the apartment unit and entered the bathroom where the suspect was barricaded. The suspect points his firearm in the direction of Marks and the other responding officer. Marks fires two shots and kills the suspect. Uh, Marks is immediately placed on administrative leave and required to see a department psychologist. This is a doctor by the name of Tenney. Dr. Tenney reports that Marks had been involved in a number, four, prior fatal shootings in 2001, 2006, 2011, and 2015. This incident makes the fifth. And in each of them, before 2018, uh, Marks was determined to be fit for duty and released back to work. Uh, Tenney doesn't, however, release Marks back to work. He sees something that gives him concern, and he sends Marks for a second evaluation to a doctor by the name of Paul Wynn. And this one is for a psychiatric evaluation. Uh, Dr. Wynn uh, noted that Marks had complained of some PTSD signs and symptoms since 2006, but had never been treated for the PTSD, had never been formally diagnosed with the condition. And Dr. Wynn ends up concluding that it's the most recent shooting incident, the 2018 one that I described, um, and the subsequent symptoms that have now rendered Marks unable to work. Dr. Wynn recommends medical retirement. Marks does take a medical retirement. Uh, and then Marks files an application for workers' compensation benefits. Uh, Metro denies the claim, taking the position uh, that Marks's injury did not arise out of the course and scope of his employment. An appeals officer says, yes, it did, uh, and then Metro ends up taking the case to the Nevada Court of Appeals. So what's, what's floating around here? Uh, what's floating around in the background from a legal standpoint is that under Nevada law, uh, a, some stress claims are permitted, but Nevada law does not allow a stress claim that is built up over the course of multiple incidents. Instead, under Nevada law, a workers' compensation claimant has to show that stress, in this case PTSD, was caused by a discrete, identifiable occurrence. So here the department is saying, look, Marx has been involved in five different shootings. He was displaying PTSD symptoms as far back as the second of them, and he can't show that this most recent shooting is the cause of his PTSD. So what does the court do with that issue? Court upholds the hearing, uh, uh, the appeals officer's decision that Mark should be entitled to workers' compensation benefits. And the court points to the same thing that Dr. Wynn pointed to, that after each of the other shootings, the first four, uh, Marx was cleared to return to full-time employment without any restriction. Uh, there's no evidence, says the court, either on the part of Dr. Wynn or Dr. Tenney or even Metro's doctor. There's no evidence that Marx's PTSD 
was the result of a gradual mental stimulus during his years as a police officer and a SWAT team member. Instead, uh, really, the only clear evidence that exists here is that the PTSD arose out of the 2018 shooting. So, uh, and let me uh, tell you how the court's opinion uh, concludes. The court says, quote, we also point out that our law only requires that the incident causing a claimant's injury be the primary cause of the injury, not the exclusive cause. The appeals officer's conclusion meets the evidentiary standard, including the failure of Metro to present any evidence contradicting or limiting Dr. Wynn's medical opinions. Thus, the appeal officer's conclusion that Marx presented clear and convincing evidence that his claim was based primarily on the 2018 incident is not erroneous, arbitrary, or capricious. Now, you would think, wouldn't you, that there might be a national standard for the judging of the stress claims, PTSD claims, but there's not. Uh, these are judged on a state-by-state -state basis, and it depends upon how your state workers' compensation laws are written, and in some cases, it depends upon how your state courts are interpreting those laws. There are some states, for example, where stress claims simply are not permitted. On the other end of the continuum, there are some states where stress claims are considered in exactly the same way a claim for a bad back or a bad knee uh, would be considered. And so they're subject to a pretty lenient burden of proof. And then there's everything in the middle. Uh, statutes like Nevada, where the stress claim has to be based on a single identifiable incident. Statutes in other states that say that the level of stress has to be such that somebody in that particular job here, a police officer's job, would not ordinarily encounter in the course of their job. There are other states that compare that level of stress to that of a general employee, not a person in that particular job. So it's just simply all over the map. And it, it's a situation that really does beg for some sort of unification. Uh, and so uh, we shall see. We are moving in the direction, clearly, when you look around the country at state legislatures, of specific statutes that say that PTSD is uh, caused by a public safety officer's job. Uh, both police and fire were moving in that direction, but it's on a piecemeal basis and on a state-by-state -state basis. Well, that's it for our last podcast of 2022. Uh, I wish everybody a great and uneventful uh, holiday season. Hope to see you at our Public Safety Union Leadership Conference on January 25th uh, in Las Vegas. You can go to our website, LRIS.com, uh, to get all the information on that seminar. Uh, and uh, I wish, as, as I said, all of you a very safe and wonderful holiday season. With that, this is Will Aitchison signing off.